Carrots and peas, carrots and peas, carrots and peas. <clears throat> Welcome. Okay, you ruined it. What does carrots and peas even mean? That's it's just a you know it's a, a it's a public speaker's trick to you know just warming up the mouth. The mouth. Carrots and peas. Right. Carrots and peas. Carrots and peas. Peas and carrots. Does that have the same effect? No. Or do you have doesn't. to do carrots and peas. You have to do carrots and peas. Why not peas and carrots? I, I don't know. All right, whatever. <laughs> Welcome, my lords, to the Well-Earned Comforts Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Seth. Thank you for joining us on the Walls of Isengard as we explore the many works of Tolkien and discuss life. We're glad to have you as part of the Fellowship, as there's no telling... Where we'll be swept off to. We hope you had a wonderful and happy and merry Christmas and holiday season. It is 2023 now, and we are ringing in the new year with a wonderful podcast here on Chapter 4 of Children of Hurin. But before we do that, we're going to babble like Butterbur and just catch up with one another here for a little bit. So, Seth, what's going on? How was your holiday season? It was great. I mean, it was. I had to work on Christmas Day, unfortunately, uh, but thankfully we were able to get some time off on either side of that. So we celebrated on Christmas Eve and got the tree up and, you know, some Amanda worked hard with decorations and we ate some, you know, good food and just spent time together. We watched the Jim Carrey Grinch, which I think is, it's probably going to be a tradition moving forward. Amanda and I have done that for the last few years, but that's, it's a wonderful life. And Jim Carrey Grinch are like our two Christmas movies that we go to every year. Yeah, I mean, the Jim Carrey Grinch is the only Grinch that I will ever watch. I mean, the original's yeah. fine, but the new one, it's like, it's too, it, it's too happy-go-lucky. Like, oh, yeah, it's cool. Like, no, I was a Grinch growing up. Like, you, <laughs> like it speaks to me on, on a deeper level. Like, I was I think, we, I think we all kind of were growing up a little bit, but. <laughs> <laughs> when you right. are told you can't celebrate Christmas because it's a pagan holiday and you see all your friends celebrating it, you kind of turn into a Grinch. Yeah. But then my heart grew three times larger when I met Ariel's family. Yeah. It's funny how uh, the women in our lives tend to do that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, we had a great time. Come New Year's, Amanda looked at me at like 8 o'clock and she was like, there's no chance I'm staying awake. Like, <laughs> if you want to stay awake, you can. Um, but I'm going to bed. <laughs> so we put Evelyn down and she went upstairs to read. And I was like, well, I kind of want to stay up. And so I actually played some age of empires and then nice. i heard fireworks in the in the neighborhood and i was like oh all right i guess i'll go to bed now so i just turned it <laughs> off and went to bed the life of a, a real adult now <laughs> i know it's a little different than it used to be growing up with our our infamous new year's parties and capture the flag and all those oh, fun yeah. things that we used to do but staying up till five in the morning playing time splitters on the on the gamecube <laughs> <laughs> time splitters and star wars battlefront yeah, those were the games. Those were that was the life back in the day. Man, no worries, no stress, no bills. It was great. It was fantastic. <laughs> well, what about you? How I know you had Ariel's parents out for a while. How was all that? Yeah, that was good. They uh, were out until the thirtieth, and on the 29th, our lives changed drastically as we were placed with our first uh, foster child. He's fifteen, and he's. Uh, he's, he's a really nice kid. We have enjoyed having him around. It's definitely awkward and weird having a 15 year old boy in your house and just trying to like engage with conversation, but also give him their space. And 
you know, he we played a game of Madden. I beat him. He got real mad. <laughs> <laughs> then we we told him we went to GameStop. We were like, all right, you can get whatever game you want. And so he got 2K, the NBA 2K. And then we played that and he destroyed me. And so I was like, you all right, you, you've got your revenge. <laughs> but it's it's been it's been fun having him. And, you know, we're just trying to get him integrated in school right now and, and going through like there's so much like paperwork and other things that I was like, ah, I guess this is what a parent does is, you know, write paperwork and doctor's notes and make appointments and all this kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, that's been the biggest, biggest thing for us so far. We're back to work and trying to figure out how to do that after, you know, a good week off, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately for us, unfortunately for you, I have that whole week off after Christmas. And obviously Ariel did too, working at the schools. So we were honestly just kind of stuck at home a lot. And so it's been good to get back into a routine and start working again. Uh, this morning, though, I got I got a new PR at the gym today. What'd you hit? So I hit 405 on deadlift. Okay. But for 10 reps. 10? I got 10 reps. Sheesh. <laughs> I was that like, is... I just, I just want to see how many I could get. I did 455 for three just to kind of like make it feel heavy. And then... I just waited like three, four minutes and did four or five for as many as I could. And I got 10. Dang, son. Well done. Well Thanks. done. Were you torched after that? Like, I'm done deadlifting. This is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I stopped. I was all late. I mean, yeah, I was, I, I just re- unracked and, and went to the next thing. But you're going to feel my... that. You're going to oh, yeah. feel that tomorrow and the next day. Yeah. And maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to do. But I was like, I just want to see how many I can get. And on my, on my little app, it says that my, my PR should be now 540, even though I've You're only ever hit max. Yeah, that was the math. Uh, apparently, <laughs> I'd be I'd be curious to see because um, a, a lot of those calculators are a little less accurate the more reps you do, uh, um, just based on percentages and stuff. Um, yeah, I will say you actually tied my 405 PR. I've I've done um, 405 for 10, and then my one rep max around that same time when it was at my strongest, I think I hit 530, um, maybe 535, 530 or 535. So it's probably okay. not too far off, but it's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. I've only ever hit 505. I maybe could have gone a bit more, but I didn't. I stopped after that. I felt my back kind sure. of arch a little bit and I didn't want to be that guy. So no, but, but I mean, that's impressive. That's one heck of an achievement, especially yeah. with you know, how much cardio you've been doing and running and leaning down and stuff like that. So now I haven't, I haven't been running since the race, really. <laughs> I've, I've gotten a couple like short runs in, but I mean, I've definitely, I mean, I haven't done anything over, over three miles in at least three weeks. So oh, that's all right. <laughs> I mean, at least even, I mean, going to the gym, you're putting those holiday carbs to work, right? Like you're getting PRs out of those holiday carbs at least. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, converting them the right way i guess <laughs> there you go uh, but yeah that's that's pretty much pretty much all we we have going on it's been been a crazy change of the new year but we're excited for what 2023 has to bring yeah i i think it's funny everybody you know the whole new year's resolutions the whole new year new me stuff and it's like i don't know to me whenever the new year comes like i don't know how to describe it maybe there's a little sense of beginning but in reality to me it's just like it's another day we're on to 
like life just carries on as normal. I don't I don't get these grandiose like visions of what the new year is going to bring uh, like sure. a lot of people seem to. But yeah, I mean, in reality, nothing changes. I mean, your life doesn't change. I mean, you can make commitments that hopefully you keep. But I mean, I've already seen just within the first what <laughs> the sixth day of the of the year. And I mean, New Year's since it was on a Sunday, we went to the gym and it was it was packed. Really? And then we went to uh, Monday. It was a lot less. And then I went Wednesday, even <laughs> less. And then this morning, there was hardly anyone there. So I was like, okay, come on, guys. Like, I'm on your team. I, I want you to, to do this. I want you to get I there. I know. But, We're only six days into the year. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I like to look at each year and as a whole and, and kind of compartmentalize them, I guess, and, and see, okay, 2022 was this. And then 2023 is this. And, you know, so we'll see what this year brings but feeling feeling good about it so yeah let's uh let's jump into some riddles in the dark even though neither of us are in the dark i feel like we should like turn off all the lights for this but then <laughs> how we can are you read. gonna yeah how are you gonna read <laughs> <laughs> as i as i read this i'm wearing my the most political shirt that i own uh it says <laughs> frodo sam 2024 uh with the slogan i will take the ring to mordor so it's a Love christmas it. gift from amanda I think it fits perfectly as we try to read something here. I agree. You going first or am I going? I'll, I'll read first. I'll read first. Okay. Uh, and this is one I think I definitely think you're going to get. But let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Um, you know quite well, said Blank, to keep you out of mischief. And if you do not like being here, then you can remember that you brought it upon yourself. Uh, is that Mary talking to Pippin um, as they... It's after, like, Rivendell. I feel like it's in the Mines of Moria, maybe. No? Not... Really? No, oh, oh. Okay, let, come sorry, on. Sorry, sorry, come sorry, on, sorry, sorry. Come on, buddy. Let me read it again. And okay. Focus up a little bit. Turn on those listening ears. Here we go. You know quite well, said Blank, to keep you out of mischief. And if you do not like being here, you can remember you brought it upon yourself. I mean, that sounds like Mary talking to Pippin. I mean, that sounds like they're kind of a dialogue, but I mean, you've got fifty percent of that correct. Hey, <laughs> Mary. Uh, I'm giving uh, Sam hints with my face, and he's it's not working. Using him more. It's yeah. It's uh, I don't. You're I'm, gonna you're gonna you're gonna slap yourself if you don't get this. Is it a conspiracy unmasked? No. No. Okay, so I'm very far off then. Yeah, you're way off, my my friend. Uh, yeah, way just off. tell me. I'm I'm getting further down the the deep hole here. All right. Instead of blank, I'll throw in the name, which ruins <laughs> you guessing who says it. But at least I think it'll give you the context. You know quite well," said Gandalf, "to keep you out of mischief. And if you do not like being here, you can remember that you brought it upon yourself." Blank said no more. I gotcha. So that's when Gandalf takes Pippin to Gondor to Minas Tirith. Yeah. Correct. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. I should have, yeah, I should have thought of it. I was thinking like after, like right after the Council of Elrond when they snuck in to the meeting and, you know, were, ah. they were, uh, you know, embarked on the journey and then Pippin was complaining about being hungry or something like that. I don't know. But okay. yeah, no, that, I, that I makes sense. I can see that. Yeah, I can see that, that thought process there at least. Yeah. Well, all right. Very good. I got one here for you. It should be 
fairly easy, I, I imagine. Okay. <clears throat> what is it? He whispered, springing up and coming to blank. I felt something in my sleep. Why have you drawn your sword? Gollum, he answered, or at least I so guess. Yeah, that's, uh, I believe that is on the, that's going to be on the west side of the Anduin, and that is Aragorn talking to Frodo. Frodo was up, uh, what do you call it, do, taking the watch, and Aragorn sprang up. Am I right? Yeah, yeah you're, yeah, you're okay. correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there we go. What's, what's the Anduin called? What? It's a river. What? Yeah, but it's what's like what's what's the name for it? The Anduin. <laughs> well, I was trying to get you the The Great the, River? Is that yes, the name of the chapter? Yeah, yeah, oh, okay, okay. Chapter. I was <laughs> like, I'm saying its name. What do you mean it? What is it called? <laughs> yeah, no, you you were on it. Nice. That was a fun one. It took me a second, but you know, no big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we're going to go ahead. Oh, wait. Um, we actually did get a Apple podcast review. Sam, do you want to read that one off? Yeah. Yeah. Before we jump into meat and potatoes, we can get some tidings from the fellowship. So this is an Apple review from Luthien 7007. And I assume she, but I won't. I mean, you know, can't assume nowadays, but uh, <laughs> he or she probably she says very informative. <laughs> very assume, informative. I'm going to assume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very informative. Great podcast. Sam and Seth are engaging and warm. It's fun learning about the in-depth lore that Tolkien created. I don't know about Seth being warm necessarily, but I agree. Thank you so much for for uh, the, the five-star review, Luthien. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And uh, what is that? Five exclamation points at the end? I'm thinking it is a, it is a female. <laughs> yeah, that would check out. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Luthien. I'm, I'm glad you see me as a warm individual. I don't get that very often, so I no. I wonder. It. I wonder why. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump into the meat and potatoes here, uh, just kind of to catch you up. Uh, last episode, we talked about kind of the dialogue between Morgoth and Hurin, and how Hurin is going to get to watch the tragedies of of life for his children and through the eyes of Morgoth and everything like that. So this is kind of when the story turns back to Turin, who is the main character of the story. Um, and at this point, he's still just a little kid. This is right after the near Nyeth Arnoidiad or the battle of unnumbered tears. Um, and so kind of the af the direct aftermath, there's uh, three women that Tolkien mentions briefly here, uh, just directly after the battle. And the first one is um, Glor. I can't pronounce her name. This is the only time I've seen her mentioned. Um, but it's Glordhell. Glordhell. Glordhell, maybe. Yeah. Um, so she is the person who is, or the woman that was married to Haldir of Brethil. And uh, when she learned about Haldir's death, remember there was. Uh, the men from Brethel came up and kind of joined forces with uh, Hurin and Turin, or Hurin and Hur. <laughs> the names are always yeah. so confusing. H's are dads, T's are children. Got it. There you go. Um, and to help them fight. So when she found out of Haldir's death, uh, she grieved and died, uh, which seems to be a pretty common theme in 
in Tolkien's works where people die out of grief. Specifically the females too. It's almost like they just like, like, I don't know. It's just, that was my whole world. And then we just, we see that with Arwen. We see that with, uh, with, uh, what was Hor's wife's name too? Um, Rian. Yep. Rian. Yeah. And it just kind of seems to keep happening. It does. Yeah. And like Sam just mentioned, uh, Rian, uh, we mentioned her a couple of times. She actually was pregnant during this time and she went and, uh, gave birth in the mountains of, of, uh, kind of the, in Mithrum, which is, if you look at the map, it's like northeast of Dor Loman, where Turin's family is. Uh, she, so there were some remnants of elves that were left over after the battle that were up there, and she was pregnant. She gave birth to Tuor, which is, you know, a big character coming up in later stories. Uh, and then right after giving birth, she just up and left and went to the Howden near, Howden near Nyeth, I believe, uh, which is that giant mound that Morgoth created where he piled all the bodies and armor and weapons of the Noldor and the men and just made a kind of like a pyre almost of like, you know, don't challenge me again. And then um, I don't know how if it was if it was necessarily the Valar that did this, but that mound actually ended up in this desert wasteland. just growing grass and becoming green. And it actually became a deterrent to Morgoth's forces. Uh, But Rion, after giving birth to Tuor, just rushed over there. And when she found that giant mound, she just assumed and realized that her husband was dead and she gave up her life. She laid herself down and died. Yeah. And then bummer. Yeah. Yeah, it totally is. Um, and then you get Morwen, who is a little bit more of a prominent character in this book. This is the mother of Turin, the husband of Hur, Hurin. Excuse me. It's so hard with these names. <laughs> um, and she actually stayed in in uh, in Hithlum and Dorloman, and she grieved in silence. And if you remember, kind of the first you know episode that we did where we talked about their personalities and stuff and had some dialogue with her it makes sense that she would grieve in silence she's more of that stoic cut and dry uh just straightforward individual so she grieved in silence um and like i mentioned earlier Tur- turin was still just nine years old at this point but morwen was pregnant with what would turn out to be uh turin's sister and if you remember, we mentioned that the Easterlings were forced into the land of Dor Loman and basically told, like, here's your reward for um, for betraying Mathros and turning yeah. on your allies. Your double cross has led you to being locked in this area, and that's your domain. Don't leave. Uh, so these Easterlings actually began robbing all the people of, of Hador's people, and they were, you know, really cruel to them. They would enslave them and, you know, turn them into thralls. They would kill them they would you know anything that was valuable that they could take or do to them they did and so yeah, just ransacking the the people yeah just completely making life miserable and basically like you're our slaves or we kill you you don't really get a choice um and so this was really hard on all the people you know of hador's people and and Morwen, who is now kind of the leader of this group because her husband Hurin had had they assume he has passed at this point. Um, yet they all still feared Morwen. And 
for some reason, they thought that Morwen was like this white fiend, as they called it, because she had dealings with the elves. And so, like, even though they would ransack everybody else, whenever they looked on her, they got like mortal fear, and they wouldn't they wouldn't pressure her. And so she kind of got to be left alone, except you know, if anybody strayed far away from the house, they would get snatched up, or if they you know went out for hunting, it just life was very, very, very difficult for her. And so Morgoth actually believed that because of this and the mountains surrounding Dorloman, the arid Wethrin is the mountain range, um, that nobody could, could escape. And so he didn't really bend much of his thought or efforts towards this area. Um, and so that kind of led to the House of Morwen being a little bit of a sanctuary for people that could get to her, because once they got to her, then the Easterlings would kind of back off and you know, they would survive, even though it, life wasn't easy for them by any means. Um, and so there's actually this one, uh, this one Easterling named Brada who comes back in the story a couple of times, uh, but he was kind of somebody from the Easterling group that was never exactly, I don't know, of high standing. He, he was basically out to make his own fortune, figure out his own stuff, and try to make a name for himself. And so he took to, uh, he forced into marriage this lady named Arian, who was a kinswoman of, of Huarin. And this Arian secretly like sent aid to Morwen's homestead. She would send food and stuff secretly uh, because Brada was, you know, kind of the chief of the Easterlings in this area. And they, he would take up all the resources. And so if it wasn't for, um, for Aryan, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, sounds that sounds right. Close enough, right? Um, if it wasn't for her, then Morwen and and the people of her homestead would have died off a long time ago. Um, but it was hard on Morwen because of how prideful she was in that she didn't want to take alms from people. She didn't want to admit that she needed help because if you think about how we discussed, you know, her personality earlier, she's very, very, very prideful. Um. But the way she kind of rationalized it in her own mind was saying, okay, well, this is for Turin and this is for my unborn child. And on the flip side, this is stuff that was stolen from us. So it's really just, I'm getting what was mine initially. Yeah. Um, so she kind of just was, all right, whatever, I'll, I'll take it. Um, it's interesting, though, because Tolkien says that Brada was described as a bold man, but of small account among his people prior to invading Hithlam. And he was eager to gain wealth for his own. And when he looked upon Morwen, he had that mortal fear. And because of that, he really just refused to go anywhere near that house. Um, even though he kept a watch on it, he would refuse to ransack it and pressure it and stuff like that. Yeah. And so obviously now we get the, the story turning back to Turin and uh, he's still with Morwen at this time. And they didn't talk a whole lot. Like Torin was, as Tolkien says, afraid to break her silence with questions. And I mean, this kind of goes back with their personalities that Tolkien established in the beginning of the book. But also, I mean, I can imagine too, as you are, as your kid, you you have an understanding, right, of of the world, of how things run, and especially like he saw his dad leave for battle. His dad hasn't come back. Does he really want to ask that question? Hey, is he alive? You know, so yeah. for a while there, he probably was just like, I don't know how much I really want to to talk to her about this. I don't I don't I also don't want to burden her either. Like if I don't want to stress her out because she's probably very obviously stressed with all the ransacking and 
you know, trying to to provide a sanctuary for the House of Hador and stuff like that. But uh, we do have a really cool little excerpt of of a conversation that they finally do have on on what for us is page sixty nine. So I'm just going to read this. Um, this is this is Turin asking Morwen. When will he's my father? Fine, come he's, back? Yeah, he's finally kind of getting the courage to, like yeah. Sam was saying, he was afraid to answer or ask this question. So this is him finally getting up the courage to ask it. Yeah, and he and he just comes outright with it. He says, "When will my father come back to cast out these ugly thieves? Why doesn't he come?" So at this point, he sees what's happening around them, and he's like, "All right, my dad would kick butt. Like, where is he? Let's. He's he needs to come back and kick these guys out, and life needs to go back to normal." But Morwen answered, "I don't know." It may be that he was slain, or that he is held captive, which is true. Or again, it may be that he was driven far away and cannot yet return to the foes that surround us. And so Turin, just, you know, using the logic in his brain, he goes, Well, then I think he's dead, said Turin. And before his mother, he restrained his tears. For no one could keep him from coming back to us if he were alive. That's what Turin says to his mom. And you just get, again, that the interaction that Turin and Hurin had before he left, like, I think that was so pivotal in their relationship and Turin understanding like this guy, he cares about me. He loves me more than anything and nothing on this, on this earth, this Arda could stop him from coming to me if he was alive. So he must be dead. That's kind of how he's rationalizing this. And, uh, Morwen responded, I do not think that either of those things are true, my son. So she's not yet convinced that he's dead. And, but she's also not convinced that nothing could keep, uh, Hurin from coming back to them. So very, very interesting dialogue there between, between the two of them. Yeah. It's interesting to me how Morwen, even through that is still rather stoic and her responses aren't comforting to her son. Who's like, where's dad? Why, why doesn't he come take care of all these bad guys? Like why, why hasn't he come back yet? And she's just not comforting to him. She's just like, well, I think you're wrong and we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and she's I mean, she's pregnant. She's missing her husband. She's trying to lead the small little people that are left. And so there's there's a lot on her shoulders. You can kind of I think Tolkien probably understood that as he was writing. And, and I think it's really realistic how she probably is responding at this point. That's um, true. But as as we remember, if we look back to the chapter before her and left, he told her, hey, if I'm not if I don't come back. Go swiftly and do not wait for me. Like, hey, run away if, if these Easterlings come back or if Morgoth comes back. Like, you, you need to flee. Um, but because she was pregnant and the birth of her child was drawing new, she knew that the road over the mountains would be really, really dangerous. And so she assumed that if she did try to leave and then have birth somewhere, you know, have give birth somewhere in the mountains that, you know, her child would not survive, um, which is probably very true as well. So she's, again, got a lot of responsibility that she's thinking about. But... She also had a little bit of hope of Hurin's return. Again, she she knows how strong of a fighter he was. She knows, you know, who this kind of who this guy was, and so she, as Tolkien says, the hope was not yet quelled. But she knew it was not likely, logically, um, that he would come back. But her pride would not allow her to be a refuge under somebody else's roof. <clears throat> and after a couple months of some internal uh, deliberation, Morwen feared that the spies around her house would discover Turin because there was spies around. And, and like Seth said, if anyone was straight too far from the house, they'd get snatched up and people were trying to figure out what was going on, how to, how to infiltrate the estate of the house of Hador. Um, so she decided to send Turin away, which 
I can't imagine coming to this realization that you have to separate yourself from your nine-year-old child. Yeah. And just be like, all right, dude, you're going to be, you're, I'm going to have to send you away. I'm going to give you some help, but you're kind of on your own. Um, so she spoke to Turin, and this is an excerpt, but she spoke to Turin about this in her cold, factual way. And, and this is what Tolkien says. More ones talking. And it would be a hard road. And since you are my son and the days are grim, I will not speak softly. So she's like this. I'm just telling you how it is. Like, this is how you, there, there's no question here. You might die on the road. That's what she says. You might die on that road. The year is getting late. But if you stay, you will come to worse end and to be a thrall. And if you wish to be a man, when you come to a man's age, you will do as I bid, bravely. Now, they have some back and forth, too. After that, you know, Turin's like, well, what's a thrall? I don't know what that means. And she kind of explains, well, it means you're, you're, you're servant. You're at the, at the mercy of these Easterlings, and it's just a, not a good way for a man to live. And so it's really, really harsh how she speaks to him. And yet that's what he needed to hear, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's when you're reading that, it's like, oh, my gosh, like, why would you tell him he might die if you're wanting to send him away? But, I mean, she's being real. She's she has no time for games. She's this is her personality to be just kind of harsh and factual, and she's just being really really real. But um, she Turin responds by wishing to be able to stay. He wants to stay with his mother and defend her as the heir of Hadar ought to do. So he understands there's a responsibility that he is now the man of the house. Dad's gone. I'm the man of the house. It's my responsibility to protect mom. Um, but again, Morwen told him you have to leave. And so finally, Turin breaks down and, and cries openly, which is, you know, it's not what he would normally do up to this point, his personality. You know, he's been trying to hold back his emotions, hold those tears, stuff them down. But he, he asked, how, how would she find him in the wild? If he were to leave, how would, she, how would she find him? How would mom find me? And Morwen responds by saying, if you wail, other things will find you first. <laughs> oh, my it's like, gosh. It's like, dude grow up if you cry out loud other things are going to find you first and probably do worse things and i mean again that's so hard to hear but again she's just being really real like this is out of love i have to believe um yet it sounds really really cruel yeah i mean it's definitely out of love but she's also speaking to a nine-year-old kid that she's about to send away and may never see again and this poor little kid is i mean he's breaking down he's nine years old and she's like Sorry, bud, you got to you got to toughen up real quick or you may not even live, you know. Yeah, definitely. And so the way that she kind of gets him to agree is she says, I, I know where I'm going to send you and I can I can come there if I have to. Like, I know the way. And she wants to send him to King Thingol in Doriath, which if that sounds familiar, that was from the Baron and Luthien story. King Thingol is married to Melian and uh, their daughter um, Luthien. Um, that was that whole story we saw there. So this is after all of that happened. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting though, that she's sending him to Thingol who uh, up to this point, as we saw with Baron didn't really care for mortal beings. So we'll see how Correct. that plays out. Yep. yep. But the conversation ended with more Morwen um, almost char- uncharacteristically showering her love to Turin by saying, not hard for you only. It is heavy on me in evil days to judge what is best to do, but I do as I think is right. For why else should I part with the thing I most dear that is left to me? So she's, she's saying, like, I, I'm doing what I think is right. You are the thing that is left to me. You're, you're the most dear uh, to me. And so at this point, she, she just kind of comes to terms with, okay, maybe Hurin really is lost. And then they, they don't speak of this. And, 
and Turin is is wrought with emotion and confusion, and he he just has to step out and and he goes and talks to his uh, his good friend. Yeah, so that good friend is Sador uh, or Labadol, which means hop a foot, which we talked <laughs> about before. I love it too; it's hilarious. Um, and it's interesting that you kind of see this trend whenever in Turin's earlier years, whenever you see him confused, he he always goes to Sador. Mm-hmm. Um, to to talk things through, and I I wonder if that's just because Sador takes the time to listen and talk with him as opposed to just kind of talking to him. Um, I'm not really too sure, but anyways, uh, Turin goes and he, like Sam said, he's confused, he distraught, he feels lost. Like, well, I'm leaving. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know these people I'm going to. I will I ever see mom again? How's she gonna find me? You know, all these questions. He's nine years old. When he finds Sador, Sador is actually about to destroy just a beautiful chair uh, that he had made for his master, Hurin, Turin's father. And this was back, you know, when Hurin was still around and, and he was about to destroy it because they needed firewood. And, and Sador says, like, yeah, we don't want to stray too far into the woods for firewood. So I'm going to go ahead and destroy this chair, you know, use it for firewood because we have a need and this can fill that need. And Turin is confused, like, why would you do such a thing? Because when my dad gets back, he'll want to sit in it and don't destroy it because he's nine. And Sador, again, full of wisdom, replies with, false hopes are more dangerous than fears. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess it's good to be realistic, even though it's, that's a hard thing to kind of come to terms with it. Like, yeah, false hope is it can definitely be more dangerous than fears because of the ways you, you know, you'll react to things if you have that false hope. Yeah. Um, and so, so Turin and Sador or Labadol, I like calling him Labadol. It's kind of a fun name. <laughs> um, they, uh, they start to go into this conversation and, and Turin's trying to make sense of everything that's going around um, with what his mom was saying and what's, you know, the Easterlings are doing and all this different stuff. And so they have a good conversation and it, it helps Turin understand Morwin's decisions a little bit better. And when Sadar hears from Morwin's, uh, hears of Morwin's plan to send Turin away, he tells Turin that he should really not be speaking his mother's plans to, to himself or to anybody else. He's like, those are your mom is, you know, the leader of this group. Her wishes are, her wishes and we don't let the rumor spread because you know the plan could get out and i found this interesting but turin just like breaks down and he and he shouts but i must speak with someone i have always told you things and i don't want to leave you i don't want to leave this house or my mother and it's like wow I, he, he just keeps being told what to do over and over and over. And here's, here's his friend Labadol telling him, look, don't tell me about these plans. I don't want to get captured and tortured and then give away the plans, like, which is a very practical thing. And, and here's little Turin at nine years old um, learning that he needs to grow up so quickly and he just can't take it. He's like, but I have to tell somebody. I, I have to talk to somebody. And that person had always been Sador up until this point. And so Turin uh, actually begins to cry again, and and Labadol reminds him of his previous words, and and he quotes Turin's words from earlier in the book when Turin said, "I shall go as a soldier with an elven king as soon as I am able," um, which, you know, that's when he saw his dad riding out to battle, and he was blown away by like the majesty of it. And he was like, "I'm gonna go do that when I can," 
and Sador is reminding him like, Hey, Hey kid, you gotta, you gotta grow up very, very quickly. And here's what you said. You said this and it might be a little unrealistic for a nine-year-old to actually have this kind of self-reflection, sure. but I think it's very beautiful. And it's something that, you know, even I struggle with from time to time and really is a flaw in humans in general, but Turin, in a moment of self-reflection, he's speaking back to um, to Labadol after after Labadol had told him his own words. He says, "Very well. If those were the words of the son of Hurin, then he must keep them and go. But whenever I say that I will do this or that, it looks very different when the time comes. And now yep. I am unwilling. I must take care not to say such things again." Mm. It's just, man, words matter, and Tolkien is using this nine-year-old kid to put up a mirror in front of everybody that's reading this book. <laughs> I yeah, mean, absolutely. And, and so much more like, I mean, think about it back then, like when Tolkien's writing this, you had maybe a little bit of like, you could record audio. Sure. You could have like black and white movies, whatever it was. But I mean, now look at us now where everything is recorded. Tweets that you send out, Facebook posts, things podcasts. you say on the radio podcasts. Exactly. <laughs> campaign slogans whatever it is people are like okay this is what you said are you gonna hold your word are you gonna like we have you on record and it's like oh uh, i don't know <laughs> yep and, and it just i don't know it, it does seem you know back in the day you could a handshake was good enough for a contract you know and nowadays you need 30 pages of signed documents stating this that and every contingency and it's like when when are we gonna you know realize that words do matter again you yeah. know Absolutely. Uh, so I don't know. When I was reading that, I kind of reread that a few times. I was like, man, I need to be careful of that too. Cause there's plenty of things where it's like, yeah, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And you get really motivated in the moment. You're thinking and you're talking about it. And then all of a sudden it comes to putting those words into action. And it's, yeah, I don't know if I really want to do it that way, you know? So New Year's resolutions. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. Just reading that, it was holding up a mirror to myself, and it's this nine year old mm-hmm. kid in some fantasy land that never existed. Sure. <laughs> it's just, it, it shows me the mastery of Tolkien. Like words Absolutely. matter, and he was the master of words. Yep. And, and Sador, who is just always full of wisdom, he really is throughout this whole story, even though he's accounted very little among, you know, he's, he's a cripple because he hacked his own foot off on accident. Like yeah. he's not really considered in high esteem and yet he's always full of wisdom. And after, after Turin says this, he's sad or replies with, so most men teach few men learn, let the unseen days be today is more than enough. Yeah. I mean, this reminds me of the, the sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about worry, he's teaching about worry and, you know, this is something I remind myself constantly. I try to remind Ariel sometimes. Sometimes it's not helpful to be like, remember what Jesus said. He said, don't worry, because today has enough worries about itself. You know, don't worry about tomorrow, because today's got enough worry of itself. And that's kind of the, I don't know, again, Tolkien, we've talked a lot about allegory. We've talked a lot about how he didn't want to be one for one with the Bible or with Christianity or anything. But again, when that's part of your identity, when you know the scripture as well as you do, as well as he did, I'm sure that that was just already on his mind and heart for his wisdom is like understanding that, you know, worrying about what is to be the future that takes away from what you have. And today's a lot. Today has enough worry of its own. Today is more than enough, as Sador says. Yeah. Yeah. And Sador, I mean, he's just full of wisdom. And and I, it's interesting to me how Tolkien uses the dialogue to 
make points to people who are reading the book through the story in a way that makes sense within the story. He's, I don't know, you watch modern, you watch Rings of Power, where they're trying to put a message across and they try so desperately to get that message across that it makes no sense in the context of their story. And it's just blatant that that's what they're trying to do is just hit you over the head with a certain message. Yep. And they do that over and over and over. And it just, to me, they're less skilled writers, um, you know, script writers, book writers, story writers, whenever you're just beating, getting beaten over the head with a message and you, that's all you see. And it doesn't make sense within the story. It's kind of frustrating, but the way Tolkien does it, he's using this beautiful dialogue between a nine-year-old boy and somebody that he kind of sees as like a father figure and he's learning wisdom from it. And it's, but it's still pushing forward a message that Tolkien, you know, knew from the Sermon on the Mount. He's just rewording what Jesus already said, but he's doing it in a subtle way that makes you think as opposed to just getting smashed over the head with it. Yeah, completely. I, I love that. And, you know, that's something I've always admired about Tolkien is that, again, whoever reads this, you know, somebody who's an atheist, somebody who has no knowledge of the scriptures whatsoever can still be like, you know, that's right. That's that's good wisdom right there. And then hopefully one day when they hear that again, or, you know, maybe they, they see some scripture that says that it, it'll click and be like, oh, wow, Jesus is actually saying things that make a lot of sense. Because yeah. I talked to so many non-Christians who just have no, no comprehension for Jesus's teaching whatsoever. And it, and they just assume like, you have to hate these people and love these people. Like they don't actually understand at all the wisdom that Jesus taught. And specifically, right. again, like if you if you want to know more about what we're talking about, Matthew five through seven is the Sermon on the Mount, and just go read that. It's it's full of of wisdom and how to live in a way that is you know pleasing to God, but also is fulfilling our command to love the world. Um, so yeah, yeah, I just thought that was kind of a cool connection. Yeah, well said, and thanks for finding that connection because <laughs> I didn't even I didn't get make that connection when I read it until you put that in the doc, and I went, oh yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm. I'm around the Sermon on the Mount a lot <laughs> in my <laughs> lot of work. So true. Uh, but yeah, so now Turin's gotten a lot of wisdom. He's talked to Sador and that's kind of calmed his nerves a little bit. And so he decides, okay, I should go. You're right. We should, we should take off. And so thankfully his mom gives him two companions to go along with. And as he's leaving, Tolkien puts it this way, the anguish of parting smote him like a sword. So he, again, has never been in battle. He's never felt what that's like, but just the pain of leaving his mom was so, so painful. And, and as he left, he, he wept out loud and he did exactly what Mormon told him not to do by like crying out loud and other yeah. people might hear you. But he says, I don't care. I'm, he weeps out loud and he cries for his mom. I mean, again, you just imagine a nine-year-old boy screaming, mom, mom, yeah. why, why are you sending me away? And to have to hear this, because Mormon could hear him. He wasn't that far away. The echo was in the hills. And she clutched the post of her house and she, she dug in so deep that her nails were torn. And keep in mind too, like this whole time, Hurin's able to see all this because of the foresight that Morgoth has given him. And he's, he's stuck and he, I can imagine like he, he's paralyzed from the neck down because he can't move. And yet tears are just probably streaming down his face yeah. watching, this, watching this happen. And so it was exactly what Morgoth told him. Like, you're going to see... And, and you're going to mourn in the anguish of your family. Um, so pretty, pretty intense stuff there. But yeah, as, uh, as he departs, this is the same, it's the same year, a little bit after he departs, that Morn gave birth to a daughter, and she named her Neonor, which means mourning. So 
um, not mourning like the morning is you know with the sun rising it's mourning like sadness and grief but Turin was was really far off when this happened doesn't know about it and he's journeying with these two companions Gethron and Grinth Grith Grinthnir <laughs> yeah something like that <laughs> there's an n on either side of the th so it's Grinthnir i think <laughs> Uh, but these were men of the House of Hador, and they were older men, that, but they were valiant men, as Tolkien says, that they have had a lot of winters upon them. They they uh, knew the lands well. Um, and so they, they started going, and they were trying to go to Doriath to Thingol. But when they got there, the queen, that is Melian, Thingol's uh, wife, she'd put mazes around this, the the kingdom so that anyone who tried to come in would get confused. And that's exactly what happened. They got... Super confused, trying to go through the mazes of Melian, and Tolkien says that they got lost and they wandered until their food ran out and the winter cold was upon them. Um, so this is like the girdle of Melian that we discussed in the Baron and Luthien uh, episodes. But, <laughs> I love how Tolkien puts this, not so light was Turin's doom. Meaning even if he had died in the cold, meaning even if he had died of starvation or being eaten alive by wolves or something like that in, in this, no, that, that would have been easy. That would have been easy stuff as opposed to what really does befall him. And I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody, but I wonder whenever I'm writing a story and I don't write very often, I used to write more than I do, but I don't know if I really know the ending. Hmm. It seems like Tolkien already knows exactly what's going to happen to Turin. He had this all fleshed out, but yeah, again, won't spoil it for anybody else. But conveniently, as his company was pretty much just wailing in the woods, trying just anything at this point. They're, they're starving, they're cold, and they're about to die. Uh, conveniently, Belig, the strongbow, was hunting in the area and heard their cries. He and the company gave them food and drink, and he asked them, like, what are you guys doing out here? Why are you, like, wandering the, the mazes of Melian? And Turin kind of understood, like, he, they had a conversation, what was kind of what was going on, and uh, so Belig asked, he's like, what? What would you want of King Thingol? Now, Beleg was the—he was the best hunter and most crafty woodsman during this age, and so he—he he knew the land really, really well. And he's like, "What would you want with King Thingol? Why are you trying to go talk to him?" And Turin responds by saying that he would be one of the knight, one of the king's knights, and fight against Morgoth to avenge his father. <laughs> I love that. He's like, "I know, I know my goal. I know who I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to do: fight against Morgoth and avenge my father." And Belag looked upon him and said that he had the makings of a valiant man worthy to be the son of Hurin the Steadfast. So there again, we have the whole title of Hurin the Steadfast. Um, but the elves, the elves hold, held Hurin in, in really, really high regard. So Belag gladly takes them to the gates of the king's halls in Menegroth. And Turin, besides Baron, was the only mortal to have seen this place at nine years old. So again, this yeah. was a, a very secluded place and mortal men did not go here very often. Then uh, Gethron spoke the message of Morwen to Thingol, and Thingol welcomed them gladly, surprisingly. Again, like you think of the whole, I mean, the, the interaction with Baron must have really shifted his, <laughs> yeah. his thought process when it came to mortal men. He definitely had some prejudice, prejudice, I, prejudice, I don't know, prejudices that went away yeah. after his interaction with Baron. Yeah, he's like, okay, I guess there are some noble men out there, and obviously he would have known of Hurin and would have known of all of his deeds, and so he welcomes them gladly and put Turin on his knee in honor of Hurin. So he, he takes up this nine-year-old boy, puts him on his knee, and this was, this was astonishing to everybody in, around them because this was a sign that Thingol was going to take him to be his foster son. Um, 
<laughs> and I love this. Thingle said that this was Turin's home. He told him, this is your home, and you are going to be given wisdom and training by the elves. And then he closes with a wonderful statement that says, dwell now here in love. And this, this cut me, obviously, as you know, we just took in a, a foster boy. And I mean, he's, he's not here right now, so I'm going to share a little bit. But he's, he's not been dwelling with love. In the last places he's been, you know, last like he's been in four different foster homes this year, and maybe some of them were good. Maybe they tried to love him. I don't know, but he hasn't received it from the interactions I've had with him. He doesn't understand what what love is like, and and I see like I just it connected with me so on such a high level because Thingle is saying, "I'm going to provide a place for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to train you up." It's up to you. I mean, you can accept it or not. Like, but don't. No matter what you do, dwell now here in love, and that's yeah. that's the the message that Ariel and I are trying to get across for for our boys. Hey, you can dwell here in love. You know, no matter what you've done in the past, that's that's in the past. We have you here now, and and we want to train you up, and you know, we want to give you wisdom. But this is a loving place, and so I don't know. That, that really that really got me. Yeah. No. I with everything that you know you've had going on especially in just the last two weeks to kind of have this chapter settle in at this time of your life it's kind of interesting how things cross paths that way you know oh man it's perfect yeah <laughs> and and that is a beautiful statement it really is i mean turin i do you think other than the time his father brought him up and you know complimented him and stuff do you think he really feels love from anybody because his mom is a rather cold individual that very rarely showed her emotions toward him and sador i guess sador probably was the closest thing to showing love to him on a consistent basis i don't know that he that turin even really knows what what love is at this point you know that's a great point. Yeah, I think Sador probably would be the one because he just always goes back to Sador for wisdom, and, right. and he obviously trusts the words of Sador and and finds comfort in him. So, I imagine that he felt that from Sador. But you're right. Like, even though he was grieved and and it felt like he was being stabbed in the stomach when he had to leave his mom, there was definitely a lack of evidential love, you know, from from his family, yeah. and especially after his sister died too. I can't imagine like just. His his worldview, his his vision for what love really can be, I think is probably really messed up, and it is really messed up as we see as we continue through the book. But yeah, um, yeah, I just feel that that so much about you know the the, the boy that we have is, you know, I'm sure he's been given love from a few different people throughout his life, but I mean he's been in the system for two years now, and he's been pulled away from grandparents and from his mom and other things too, and it just breaks my heart. And all I just want to tell him is, Hey, dwell here in love. It's yeah. going to be hard. Like I'll be, I'll be honest with it. I'll, I'll tell him when he's in the wrong, we'll have our fights. I'm sure. But as long as he knows that he's loved here and I, I text him almost every day, he never responds, but I text him almost every day. Like, Hey, I'm proud of you yeah. and, and what you're doing. And so I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. No, and that's, that's special, Sam. That is. Yeah. So a little bit of a segue back to our story. <laughs> um, we really need there, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. I mean, uh, that's that's what I love about Tolkien is you can draw parallels to life in so many different ways. And clearly this, you know, even just that little statement hits you in such a deep place that uh, it's cool that you shared that. So thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. 
Um, so at this point, Turin is staying in Minigroth, and his companions, as Sam mentioned, uh, Genthron and Grenenthir, I don't know, um, were still with him. Uh, but they were, like Sam mentioned, they were older and a little more, you know, a little more frail, I guess. But they were valiant men. Uh, but unfortunately, Grenthir uh, died, and he, he got sick and died while he was in Minigroth, which, quite frankly, compared to the death that he was probably going to have in Dor Loman, this is a much, much better death. Um, so at this point, Genthron is like, okay, well, Morwen sent us. She doesn't know if her son reached there safely. She doesn't know if her messages have been delivered. Somebody needs to go back. I need to. I need to go back and and give her the good news that we were able to get her son to to King Thingol and Doriath, and um, and also pass along the message that Melion uh, was giving Genthron to deliver to Morwen. And so when when Genthron gets back to Morwen. He shares all these messages, and he shares that uh, that Melian is saying, "Hey, you need to come too. Don't wait. Just cross the mountains. Get to us. We'll keep you safe. We'll keep your daughter safe." Um, and this is interesting because Melian, like we mentioned in the Baron of Luthien, she's a she's a Maya, so she's on par with Sauron and Gandalf and Sauron and the Balrogs. So she's a a being of magic, and so she has this foresight, and I. Tolkien says that she's trying to disrupt the plans of Morgoth that she can see. So this is just another, uh, you know, another mention of Melian that is kind of obscure and off to the side of the story, but she's always kind of working in the background with her wisdom, uh, which yeah, I think she's, is really cool. She's such a fascinating character. Every time we see her, you're exactly what you said. There's just an abundance of wisdom and whether people listen to her or not, most of the time they don't, which is right. ridiculous, but like she's always every time you hear you hear her thoughts or you you know you hear the words that she says you're just like oh yeah that makes sense we should pay attention to her and yet <laughs> rarely does that happen right exactly um so she sent that request back to morwen and morwen basically just refused it she's like i just gave birth to a newborn who probably couldn't you know it's winter she probably couldn't cross the mountains and survive it'd be hard to travel with a crying baby like all these things she basically said i it's not going to happen. Um, but being the woman full of pride that she is, she didn't want to show her poverty or anything uh, to the elves that were with Genthron uh, delivering this message. And so she found whatever little things of trinkets she had that were made of gold and she gave them to, to the elves. And then she also gave them the dragon helm of Dor Loman um, and said, here, take these back to King Thinkle with the message that I'm staying. Um, and it was said that Turin was waiting in the woods because he knew the bidding of Melian. He knew that she was trying to summon uh, his mom to follow. And Turin was waiting in the woods every day. You know, like, when's, when's dad getting home from work type of thing? And he's waiting in the woods, waiting in the woods for these elves that he's hoping his mom's going to be with. And then when um, they come back to Thingol and to, to Menegroth and, and, and Morwen's not with them, he just breaks down in tears and fled through the woods weeping, which is, I, I, I imagine just Turin getting a tiny little bit of hope in it building every day and then just getting smashed all at one time. Yep. Like the last chance that he had to have a little bit of familiarity in life like it used to be is just gone. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, and it's interesting because at this point, <laughs> the chapter is mostly over, but 
uh, Tolkien goes into like a page and a half description of the Dragon Helm of Dor Loman, and it's just the most Tolkien thing ever. Where, yeah, it's a little relevant to the story, but he just he spends a page and a half talking about a about a helmet, um, which is hilarious. But the helmet, if you remember the Baron and Luthien story, uh, this helmet was crafted by I believe it was Telkar of Nargrod, and he is the same one that created the knife. Uh, that Baron used to cut the Silmaril from Morgoth's Iron Crown. So this is the same, uh, I guess, Smith that he's just very well renowned. And this this helmet uh, just struck fear into the eyes of whoever was facing it. Uh, and it was called the Dragon Helm of Dor Loman because, in defiance of Glaurung, who was like the father of dragons, there was a dragon on the front of it, uh, and it was this beautiful helmet that had a face shield to withstand dragon fire and uh huron actually never really wore it because he basically said i want to look my foes in the eyes and face them man to man basically mm. uh, which is interesting it, just his personality versus his dad and granddad who wore the helmet yeah um and so it's interesting uh, because the the helmet was described as being relatively invincible. That if a helmet or if a sword struck it, the sword would shatter, and if an arrow smote it, it would go off to the side. Um, that just the helmet was incredible. And it's interesting because when Thingol received this, he treasured it above. And again, it's the most Tolkien thing ever. But he goes into detail about all these different, you know, jewels and works of craft even from Valinor that he has in his halls in Minigroth and he's treasuring this helmet above all of those um and he he brings Turin in and he's basically like hey here's the dragon helm of Dor Loman and you will wear it when you get the chance like you will bear it well and <laughs> Turin at nine years old can't even lift up the helmet yet which yeah. is kind of crazy yeah um, it's nuts yeah and when the somebody when Hador was wearing this helmet in battle, the men would all cry that of more worth is the dragon helm of Dor Loman than the gold worm of Angband, um, which was in reference to Glaurung, and and I, it just this helmet inspires so much hope within within the people of Middle Earth, of the free peoples, I guess you'd say it, of Arda Middle Earth, um, as they, I guess technically it's Beleriand at this point, but yeah, yeah, um, it inspires so much hope within them that. It's. I mean, it, it does come into play later, but it's just funny to me how Tolkien, at the end of the chapter, uses like a page and a half to describe and talk about the history of a helmet. Yeah, that's very... I mean, if there's anything John Ronald Rule would do, that's what he would do. But I think it's interesting, too. He he does that a lot with certain trinkets or, you know, like Aragorn's banner that Arwen made for him, and he took that yeah. into battle, and he talks a lot about how when, when the people would see this, whether it's the helm or the banner or... Uh, other things, um, Gilgalad's spear, you know, stuff like that. People yeah. would get would would be like found hopeful in it, and I wonder if there's obviously he he fought in World War One. Like if there were those type of things that if if you were in the trenches and you saw, you know, this captain wearing a gold star or something, you know, something that showed his valor, something that showed that he had the the experiencer or the the means to protect them or to fight better for whatever reason like if that would inspire hope and and you know uplift the the people i mean i don't know yeah i wonder too that's a good point i also wonder because tolkien was huge into like norse mythology and mythologies yeah. 
of other cultures and stuff. And maybe it's kind of like, you know, the lightning bolts of Zeus or Thor's hammer, or, mm. you know, he's trying to bring those types of aspects into his own story. That's yeah. That's a really good point too. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just <laughs> people, people who don't like Tolkien complain about exactly the end of this chapter. They're like, <laughs> I don't understand why it's so important to dive into the yeah. depth of, of a helmet. Um, but the people that do enjoy Tolkien and can dive into it and stuff and make connections, it's like, it's actually very rewarding when he does that. It is. And, and also knowing too, that this is a helmet that isn't just in this story. Like it, there's connections to his universe. And it's kind of like when you see an Easter egg in the Marvel universe, like, you know, you see this or that, like, Oh, this ties back to captain America, first Avenger, or this ties back to guardians of the galaxy. Like you, you, it's all part of the same universe. And that's, that's what I enjoy doing is like knowing that, Oh, this, this helmet is has already seen a lot and we're going to see some more about it in this, in this story and stuff like that. So that's cool. Yeah. And I wonder too, I, this is kind of just a little aside. I, I need to look it up, but I wonder what the fate of the helmet was. I wonder, did, did it get to Numenor or is one of the prized possessions and then it fell with the falling of Numenor? It, it's at the bottom of the ocean or um, mm. I, I should look into that. Cause now I'm kind of curious. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good thought. I, I know I saw, a callback to it in the rings of power. Yeah. But obviously they can do whatever they want. I don't know if okay. it, that was intentional or not. Again, they went really deep into weird things that you're like, you maybe think this is what it is, but would they really actually think that far ahead? But also who's going to catch that? <laughs> like, I don't right. know. Anyway. Yeah. Great, great chapter. It was a lot happened and you, it's, it's very vital. Like, I mean, there's not a whole lot of action, right? This isn't one of Tolkien's big battle chapters, but this really sets the stage for who Turin is to become. And it shows the pain and the grief and the sorrow that he's gone through. It even says like him leaving his mom, that was the first sorrow that he experienced. And so obviously more to come, but this is what started the, the sojourning of, of Turin. Yeah. And even when, when Morwen didn't come back from, uh, from Dor Loman with the elves, he, Tolkien said, this was the second sorrow of Turin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you can see a, a pattern starting to arise that Turin is going to have a very hard, tragic life. Um, and this is really where the story, I know it's four chapters in or whatever, but it's you have to lay the groundwork for the story to be as impactful. And this is where, you know, next chapter we'll see how it was for Turin to be raised in Doriath and the struggles of being a man amongst elves and all these different things. And then basically we just hit the ground running. And after that point, it's just one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. And it's like, man, it picks up real quick. Yeah, it, it does. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad we're doing this reread together and get to glean from each other things that stand out because again, I've tried to read this before. I think I got most of the way through, but the first part of the book, I didn't, I didn't understand it. Yeah. I didn't sure. care. I was like, where's the action? I want to, I want to see people die. I want to, and there was some of that obviously with the battle of unnumbered tears, but you know, this I didn't realize how important this really was until obviously now I'm a bit bit more mature and spending some more intentional time thinking through it. So again, if yeah. you're reading along and, and listening, like send us your thoughts, uh, give us some tidings from the fellowship of what you're thinking too, because uh, we always say it, but I'm sure there's something that stood out to you that that we missed or that we didn't catch. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, make sure you leave us a five-star review on wherever you listen and just give us a little blurb what you're thinking so far um, and shoot Sam an email. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, we're already kind of in it, but this leads us to our section, Gondor Calls for Aid. We're breaking in the halls of Metaseld and we're shouting, Gondor Calls for Aid, will you, Rohan, answer? 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please do exactly what we just said by lighting a beacon and sharing it with fellow friends and fans. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review, hopefully with words as well as those five stars. And if you'd like to share your Tolkien story or your thoughts on Children of Hurin, send it to me via email at weckpodcast at gmail.com, wecpodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be diving into Chapter 5, the upbringing of Turin and Doriath with the elves. But until then, thank you for joining us for some well and comforts. We bid you a very fond farewell. <laughs>